Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you guys. We're back in the book of Romans, so you can turn there. Uh, I wanted to actually begin this morning by thanking you all. I am very grateful you gave me a number of weeks out of the pulpit over Christmas break, and that proved an incredible blessing to me. I had a very busy Christmas break, a couple things to let you guys know about. I had my next surgery on my eye. Um, most of you probably don't know, but uh, about three years ago, I lost the use of my right eye. So uh, all of you over here on the right side of the room, if you feel like I don't engage with you, it's not you, it's me. I, I can't actually see you most of the time. So sorry about that. I, I've had a number of surgeries now. This was the third one and uh, it went really well. Doctors are very optimistic. I have another surgery in a month or two and they think I'll be able to see. So I'll hang out with all you guys at that point. So That was the first thing that was taking up a lot of my Christmas break. The other reason I'm really grateful for the time out of the pulpit, uh, Grace Bible Church was blessed to be approached by a publisher, Nav Press, to write some Bible studies for publishing uh, throughout the United States, throughout the world. So we spent a lot of Christmas break, Brian Fisher, Matt Morton, and I writing Bible studies for Nav Press on Gideon and Peter and Daniel. We've got those mostly wrapped up. They'll be published and in stores in October. So we're excited about that opportunity for Grace Bible Church to, to bless others through our Bible study. So anyways, what an incredible blessing you guys gave me that time out of the pulpit. I really thank you for that. And I'm really thankful to you guys who are in the audience who spoke in my stead, some of the other pastors and directors here at Grace Bible Church. What a blessing that you did that. You guys did a great job. We were really blessed by all who spoke over Christmas break. Now, all that said, I'm grateful to be back with you this morning. Really glad that we get to jump back into Romans. I have missed it. So we're going to jump back into Romans. Next week, we're going to pick up where we left off and move through chapter 7. But before we do, this week I want to review because we covered a ton of ground last semester and it's been a while. So we're going to review and I know no better way to review than with a pop quiz. So we're going to take a pop quiz. I'm I'm serious. We're going to take a pop quiz. I want you to pull out a sheet of paper or a spot in your journal or uh, you're welcome to pull out your smartphone if you want to type your answers. But... Really, we're going to take a pop quiz, so pull out the paper, pull out your smartphone. I'm going to give you guys six questions, six short answer questions I want you to answer. Now, actually, the first service was really mad with me about this. You guys are taking this a lot better than they did. Uh, Pop quizzes, I I hated them too. In school, they always felt unfair to me because, you know, you couldn't study ahead of time. But I got to admit, pop quizzes really do test whether you know something. So that's what we're going to do at this one. We're going to see if without study, if without cramming, we're going to see how well you know Romans 1 through 6. So pull out that paper, that pen or pencil, or your smartphone. I'm going to give you six short answer questions. Most of these can be answered in just one word, maybe a couple words. So here's question number one I want you to think about. Answer in three words or less, what is Romans about? What is the big idea of the book of Romans and three words or less? Write it down. What do you think? Big idea, the book of Romans. Question number two. What's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Why is this world so messed up? In, in just one word. This is a one word answer. What is wrong with the world? And the related question, it's a two part question. Whose fault is it? What's wrong with the world? In one word. And who's at fault? In one word. Let's think about that. Question number three I want you to answer. What is justification? We spent a ton of time last semester talking about this theological word, justification, really significant to the meaning of the book of Romans, really significant to your whole eternity. So what does justification mean? How would you define that word in three words or less? Question number four, is God's grace free or is it costly? There's an easy question for you. Is God's grace free or costly? What do you think? Question number five, two-parter. 
Why shouldn't justified people sin? We who have been justified, we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Why shouldn't justified people give in to the temptation of sin? Now, there's a whole lot of answers given to that question in Scripture, but there's two in particular that we covered in chapter 6, two big ideas why justified people shouldn't sin. So see if you can remember those. Two big ideas, Romans 6, why justified people shouldn't sin. All right, last question. Perhaps the biggest question of all. Why are we still here? We who are justified, why hasn't God taken us home yet? Why aren't we with God in heaven? We know heaven's a much better place than here on earth. So why has God left us here? Why are you here on earth? In three words or less. Okay, so how'd you do? feel like you know the answers to those questions. Well, um, we're not going to collect them, not going to grade them, because if you did well, I would feel prideful, and if you did poorly, I would be depressed all week, and I, I don't want to be. So um, we're just going to go through them together. You can correct them on your own. want to make sure you guys know the answers to these questions, because the whole rest of the book of Romans is built on your answers to these six questions. You need to know these things so you can understand chapters 7 through 16. won't get anything else this semester if you don't get this. So Let's jump right in. Let's jump into question number one. What is Romans about? Now, uh, let me frame this question for you this way. Let me, let me talk to the men in the room. Men, um, have you ever been in a conversation with a woman, uh, maybe your wife or, or your mom or a sister or a girlfriend? Have you ever been in a conversation with a woman and, and you thought the conversation was about something simple, something straightforward, not, not, a, not a big deal at all, only to discover an hour into the conversation as the woman is crying in front of you that actually it was about something much bigger, something much deeper, something much more important. Has that ever happened to you guys? I, I was uh, sitting down with my wife talking to her last night looking for illustrations for my story and I thought maybe this would be a good one to, to put in there. And so I said, Julie, have I ever done this expecting that maybe she would give me a funny example and she just looked at me with a smile on her face and said, oh, sweetie, only all the time. <laughs> it really can't boil it down to one example for you, sweetie. Uh, that's just part of being a man. I miss the big idea a lot of the time. I think we're talking about something surfacy, and we're actually talking about something much more significant, much deeper. Well, that is the mistake that most people make with the book of Romans. Most people read the book of Romans, and they see on the surface only, and they assume, they conclude that the book of Romans is about us that it is about me, that it is about how I get saved, how I go to heaven, how I live the Christian life. We assume that it's about us. Well, Romans has things to say about all of that. Romans does talk about those things, but that's not what Romans is primarily about. What is Romans primarily about? God. The main character of the book of Romans is not us. It is God. The book is all about him. He is the center of the book of Romans. And actually, all three members of the Trinity are at the heart of Romans. You see all of them as the main characters on the stage of the book of Romans. You see God the Father as the righteous king. You see God the Son as our sacrificial redeemer. You see God the Spirit as our supernatural enabler. They are what the book of Romans is about. It's not about humanity. It's not about us. It's about God. And above all else, what, what Paul wants us to know about our God from the book of Romans is that he is righteous. Now, if you had to just answer that question with, with just one line, what is the book of Romans about? This is what I'd say. It's about the righteousness of God. That is the big answer. That's what all of Romans is about. Turn with me to chapter one. 
Let's look back at chapter one, verses 16 through 17. Big idea of the book of Romans right here in verses 16 and 17. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. That's what Romans is about, the righteousness of God. And we spent a lot of time last semester talking about that word, righteousness. It means that God is right. He is right in all that he is and he is right in all that he does. And probably the best verse in all of scripture to look at if you want to understand this this concept of God's righteousness is from back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, 4. It says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is here. You you get all these, these synonyms, these parallel terms for righteousness here. When we say that God is righteous, what we mean is he, he is perfect in everything he does. We mean he is, he is just in everything he decides. We mean that he is faithful to everything he promises. That's the righteousness of God. And that's the big idea of Romans. That's what it's all about. You could think of, of Romans as, as an extended defense of the rightness of God. That's where Paul goes in the book, an extended defense of the rightness of God. You see that in the outline. If you want to see how the book of Romans breaks down, this is what the book of Romans covers. It's all about the righteousness of God. In the first section, it is about God's righteousness in judgment, that God is right to condemn humanity because of our sin. In the second section, it turns to good news, that God is right in, in declaring right those who believe. Uh, In the next section, God is right in making us right through the power of the Spirit. Fourth section, God is righteous in history. He is faithful to fulfill his plan to make the world right through the Jewish people. Finally, fifth section, God is righteous in my life. He is demonstrating his righteousness to the world through my life as I obey. That's what Romans is about, the righteousness of God proven and manifested through us. That's the big idea of the book of Romans. Not about us, it's about God. Second question we looked at is, what's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Well, uh, we're in political season again. So we've been subjected to an unprecedented number of political debates. I can't believe how many debates there are this year. And what do candidates do? Well, well, candidates square off against one another. And what they do is they list out everything that is wrong with the world, especially their pet issues, whether it's taxes are too high, taxes are too low, global warming, terrorism, fear, whatever it might be. They list out all of these things as the problems of the world. Um, What interests me is that in no political debate yet have I actually heard the right answer. Because none of those things are the right answer. Those are just symptoms of the problem. Uh, Unemployment, poverty, lack of education, warfare, poverty, disease, all of that stuff. That's not ultimately what's wrong with this world. Those are just symptoms of the problem. I've never heard a politician say what's actually wrong with the world. What is it? One word, sin. That's why this world is messed up. That is the reason for the brokenness on the planet earth is because of sin. To sin is to rebel against God's authority to trespass against God's righteous commands. And that sin is the root of all evil. Scarcity, warfare, famine, disease, terrorism, crime, all of it comes from sin. 
Sin is the root behind all of it. That leads us to the second part of this question. So whose fault is it? If sin is the problem with the world, then who is at fault? Let's go back to politics. Um, How would a political candidate answer that question? Whose fault is it? What would he say? He would say the other guy. The guy sitting next to me, the guy at the podium right here, the other party, it is their fault. That's what we do. We shift the blame. Not my fault. It's the other guy. That's how we operate. We blame anyone else. Uh, So for this question, who is at fault for the sin in the world? We blame others. We we might look to God. Well, it's God's fault. He created the world this way. Or, Or maybe it's Satan's fault. He's the one tempting us towards sin. Or it's the fault of those other people, those immoral people, those people of a different political view, a different race, a different social class, a different religion. It's all their fault. Unfortunately, the book of Romans doesn't let you get away with that. Book of Romans places the fault with us, all of us. We went through that in great detail in chapters one through three. Paul is absolutely clear. Who is at fault for the brokenness in this world? Certainly not God, not even Satan. He's bad, but it's not his fault that this world is messed up. It's our fault. It's our fault because of our sin. We have chosen sin, and that is what has brought brokenness to this world. Paul goes through a a detailed defense of that assertion. He begins by proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of us have sinned. Look with me at these verses starting in chapter three. Chapter three, verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul is saying is none of us get off the hook. Now, there may be someone out there who sins worse than you do, but that doesn't let you off the hook because you're you're misunderstanding sin if you think that they're sinning worse than you. Sin is not a relative thing. It's not a relative thing to be weighed. Sin is a binary state. Either you have sinned and are therefore a rebel against God, or you haven't. And unfortunately, all of us have. We talked about that at great length last semester when we talked about about that sin that many people in the Christian community tend to elevate above all others. Homosexual behavior. As if it somehow makes you a worse sinner than anyone else. And we debunked that. We said, no. Sin's not relative in God's eyes. Sin is sin. And we're all sinners. It's just one of many sins. We have all sinned. Now, why have we all sinned? Paul goes to great lengths to talk about that in chapter five. He says that we have all sinned because we are all sinners. Chapter five, verse 19. Just the beginning of the verse. He says, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What Paul is saying is that when Adam chose to sin, he plunged the human race into the state of sin. He made it so that every human being born on this planet is born a sinner by nature. The root of our problem is not that we do sinful things, is that we are sinful people. I am a sinner by nature and therefore I do sinful things. That's the problem for the human race. We are all at nature. Deep in our hearts, we are all bent towards sin. And that's really bad news for us because Paul also goes to great lengths to show that the penalty of sin, the consequence of sin is death. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. What you get for sin, the payment you get from God in the universe for sin is death. 
Now that term death in Romans is a really broad term. Paul means a number of things by death. Three things in particular that Paul has in mind when he uses the word death. The first is a life of death. A life of death, that is a life devoid of God's power, of God's love, of God's peace, of God's joy. A life that is full of of broken relationships, of suffering, of addiction, of pain. That is a life of death. That's what Paul's looking at back in chapter one. Look back at chapter one, verse 18. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is about the present wrath of God. God's punishment of sin currently being poured out on the world against all who reject God and walk in sin. It's talking about the consequences that come from sin. When you walk in sin, you experience pain and suffering, a life of death. That's the first thing that Paul means by the word death in the book of Romans. The second is what we typically think of physical death. Sin brings physical death. Look at back at chapter five. We're gonna be flipping all around this morning. Chapter five, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. What Paul is saying is this. God's intention for you was never death. God did not create you or design you as a human being to die. He designed human beings to be immortal. So why do we die? Because Adam ate the fruit. Because Adam chose sin. Because of that, he brought sin into the human race. And from that point on, all human beings die physically as a result of sin. Third thing that Paul means by death. The worst by far, these first two are bad, but the worst by far is eternal death. Eternal separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. Look with me at chapter two. Chapter two, verse five. Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is about God's future wrath about God's eternal punishment poured out upon sin. That is the ultimate consequence of sin. If we die as rebels against God, then we will for all eternity pay the penalty of that in a place called hell. Sin brings death. So this world is really messed up. This world is full of pain and disappointment, suffering and death, and it's not God's fault. And it's not even Satan's fault. And it's not just the fault of the bad people out there. It's our fault. All of us are to blame. We are all culpable for the mess in this world. That's the answer to question number two. We're at fault because of our sin. Now on to the good news. That's a lot of bad news. Lots of bad news from 118 to 320. Fortunately, Paul turns the corner. 321, you can turn there. Chapter three, verse 21. Paul turns the corner and he begins to present the good news. The good news of God's solution to sin. God did not leave us in wrath. He created a solution and we call that solution justification. That leads us to the next question. What is justification? Look with me, chapter three, starting in verse 21. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's a key word right there, verse 24, justified. That's a solution to the problem of sin. God has justified us, but what does that word mean? 
Talked about that a lot last semester. Uh, Justified doesn't mean make someone righteous. Justification is not a change of your behavior or character. And and justification, it doesn't mean as if I never sinned. I'll, I'll hear people use that definition, that to justify means to make it as if I never sinned. Well, no, justification isn't a case of amnesia for God. That's not what's going on. Uh, justification is a legal term. It's a courtroom term. To justify someone means, this is the answer, to declare someone to be in the right. That's what it means to justify, to declare someone to be in the right. It's a legal term. When you hear justify, think of a gavel falling on the judge's bench. It's a declaration. The judge declares the defendant to be acquitted. You are innocent in the eyes of the court. That's justification. It is a declaration that we declare you to be in the right legally. Justification is a legal declaration that is instantaneous. Justification isn't a process. You are not trying to accrue or earn or merit or build justification over the course of your life. Justification is a moment in time thing. Boom, God slams the gavel, it's done forever. And it's irrevocable. There is no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. He doesn't allow that. Once he declares you right, it's over. Case closed. You are right forever. So justification is irrevocable. It can never be lost. Now that leads us to the next question. So justification, this grace of God that we receive in justification, is that grace free or is it costly? Is it free or is it costly? Well, that's kind of a hard question because actually it's a trick question. The answer is both. I love trick questions. I love these. It's both. Depends on how you look at it. It's as if you ask me, Blake, is eating bluebell ice cream good or bad? What's the answer? (laughs) It's both. Do you mean good for my taste buds and short-term happiness? It's very good. Or do you mean good for my waistline and long-term health? It's very bad. Depends on the perspective at which you're looking at it. So it is with grace. Is grace free or is it costly? Well, if the perspective you're looking at is for us, is grace free or costly for us? The answer is simple. It's free by definition. It has to be free if it's grace. Look back at verse 24. Paul says that justification comes to us as a gift by grace. As a gift by grace. A gift from God motivated by his grace, not motivated by any payment, any merit that we have made. Grace is by definition a free gift. If you had to give anything to God or promise anything to God to receive justification, then by definition it wasn't grace. Grace, biblical grace, is, it's not a, a discount. That's how some people think of it. Grace is, is you get something awesome for a small price. That's the Mormon understanding of salvation. You give everything you can and God makes up the rest so you can be justified. No, biblical grace isn't a discount, it's a gift. Some people think of it like a loan. Grace is God giving you something awesome that you then repay through a lifetime of good works and obedience. No, it's not a gift. That's a loan. That's not biblical grace. Biblical grace is simply a free gift, a no strings attached gift from God to you. It must by definition be free for the recipient. It is free for you. All you have to do is simply receive it and you do so through faith. That's where faith fits in. Faith are the hands that are put before the Lord to receive his gift of justification. We spent a long time last semester defining this biblical idea of faith. We concluded that that biblical faith is the conviction that something is true and therefore worthy of your trust. That's faith. 
conviction that something is true and therefore worthy of your trust. So all that you have to do to receive justification is simply believe, simply trust that God really is offering you eternal life, eternal righteousness as a free gift. The moment you believe it, you receive it. So for us, is grace free or costly? It is absolutely free. Now let's look at it from the other perspective. What about for God? Is grace free or costly? Immeasurably costly. Infinitely costly. Costly beyond anything we can comprehend. Look back at verse 25. Verse 25, Paul says, whom, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation. Big word that we looked at last semester. Propitiation. It means to take God's wrath in our place. To propitiate is to satisfy the wrath of a God. What God is saying is that what it took to justify you was the son of God had to step in your place. He had to stand in your place and take God's wrath, his punishment of sin in your place. That's what the cross is about. It is the place of propitiation, the place where the infinite, almighty, innocent, immortal son of God took your punishment in your place. And Paul tells us, verse 26, he did so so that God the Father could be just and justifier of the one who has faith. I think that's one of the most beautiful word plays you'll find anywhere in the Bible, just and justifier. Remember, the big idea of Romans is the righteousness of God. God is righteous in all he is and in all he does. And our sin presents a problem for that. God is righteous as a judge. He can't overlook our sin. He can't sweep your sin under the rug, put it in the closet, pretend it never happened. God must judge it. But because he loves us, because he is gracious, he sent his own son, Jesus, to stand in our place and take the punishment our sin deserved. That was the cost for your justification. So justification is for us absolutely free, but for God, infinitely costly. It cost the life of his own son. And that's the good news of the gospel. That we who deserved wrath, who deserve punishment for all eternity, have received a free gift of forgiveness, of eternal righteousness, not because of what we have done or because of what we will do, but because of what Jesus did in dying for our sins in our place and then rising from the dead. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus took your place. He did what you could not do so that you could have eternal life. And you get to receive that gift of justification simply by faith, simply by believing that right now God really is handing it to you. That's the answer to the fourth question. Free or costly, both. Depends on who you're looking at. Fifth question. Why shouldn't justified people sin? Why shouldn't we who are justified give in to the temptation of sin? Now, let me frame this question for you by telling you about my kids, Luke and Gracie. Uh, they're just over two years old now. They're uh, twin toddlers. Um, Luke and Gracie are really fun. Uh, they really enjoy jumping on our bed. In fact, if, if Luke and Gracie could write and could write you a list of their favorite things in life, I guarantee that jumping on mom and dad's bed would be at the top. They love it. Just one problem. We don't allow it. We don't allow it because the bed's really tall and really bouncy and, and they're little and they're super uncoordinated. And so jumping on our bed is just like an invitation to go to the emergency room. It's, it's not gonna work out well, so we don't allow it. So when my kids are on the bed reading or playing, I tell them, I warn them, if you jump on the bed, I will punish you. Now, that warning works so long as I'm in the room. 
But if the phone rings or I have to do something and step out of the room, what are my kids thinking? Well, the threat of punishment is gone. He won't know what we do. And so they jump. I guarantee I know it. They're in there jumping on the bed. They do it because the threat of punishment is gone. Why shouldn't they give in to their heart's desire and jump on the bed? That's the genesis of Romans chapter 6. We have been spared the threat of punishment. The moment you are justified through faith, the threat of punishment for you evaporates. Punishment is gone. Jesus took all of your punishment for all of eternity in your place. You can never again be punished by God for your sin. Okay, good. So why not give in to the temptation of sin? Now, there's lots of answers that the Bible gives for that. But in Romans 6, Paul gives two big ones. Two big ones. The first is... Why shouldn't justified people give in to sin? Because Jesus died to free us from sin. Because this is why Jesus died. Look with me, chapter six. Let's read the first few verses. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? That all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here's what Paul is saying. What he wants us to understand is that, that the Son of God, the infinite, immortal, almighty, perfect Son of God died for this explicit reason, to free us from sin. So how can we imagine returning the favor by walking back into sin? To Paul, that's, that's inexcusable. That's unimaginable. How can you go back in living in what the Son of God died to set you free from? It's unbelievable to Paul. How in the world could you do that if that's why Jesus died? Second reason that Paul gives us is the second half of chapter six. Why shouldn't justified people sin? Because sin always leads to slavery and death. Sin always leads to slavery and death. That's the second half of chapter six. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Here's what Paul's saying. Think back to my kids bouncing on the bed. My kids are right. When they jump on the bed and I'm not in the room, they're not going to be punished because I don't know that they're jumping on the bed. I, I cannot punish them. However, what my kids don't understand is the reason that I made that rule is because I know if you jump on the bed, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt real bad. We've had a number of falls, number of bashed heads, things that have hurt a lot worse than my punishment would have. What my kids fail to understand is just because punishment is gone, it doesn't mean you have escaped the natural consequences of sin. That's Paul's point. Yeah, justification spares you from God's punishment from your sin, but it does not spare you from the unavoidable natural consequences of sin. In this universe, as God has designed it, sin always leads to slavery and death, whether you're justified or not. It is just the law. It is how this universe works. If you walk in sin, you will experience slavery and death. That's the point of those verses we read. Paul wants us to understand sin, even for those of us who are justified, sin is not a, a toy to be enjoyed. It is not a pet to be managed and watched over. Sin is a predator. Sin is a predator that seeks to consume and devour everything in its sights. If you give sin an inch in your life, it will take a mile. And we talked at the end of the fall semester about how God designed our bodies, our minds, and our spirits such that sin is inherently addictive. 
God designed us so that actions I do over and over again turn into habits. And if those actions are negative, they turn into addictions that affect the way my brain and spirit operates. If I give into sin today, it gives sin power over me tomorrow. It turns into an addiction that owns my life and leads me down the path of death. Now, I'm justified, so it won't lead me to eternal death, but it will lead me to the other two. It will give me a life of death, a life devoid of God's peace and power and joy, a life full of brokenness and pain. It will hurt me and everyone around me because that's what sin does. Sin is a predator that wants to bring death into your life. Sin always leads to slavery and death. Sin is never a good idea, whether you're justified or not. Finally, fifth question that we asked, perhaps the biggest question of all, why are we here? Why are you here on the planet earth? Especially if you have believed the gospel, if you are justified, why hasn't God taken you home yet to be with him? We know that heaven is a far better place than earth, so why has God left you here? That's a really significant question. A guy named Viktor Frankl, an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist uh, who was also imprisoned during World War II by the Nazis. He was in concentration camps, including Auschwitz. He spent a number of years there and he observed during his times in these Nazi concentration camps that the prisoners who survived were those who had a meaning who had a reason to live. Those were the guys who made it. He discovered that the human being can endure almost any suffering if they have an answer to the question, why? Perhaps the most important question we ask, why am I here? Why has God made me and placed me in this place? Now, why has he left me here? Why hasn't he taken us home yet? Now, I think most of us have a sense that that the world's answers to that question are lacking. What does our culture say? Why are you here? to be happy, to get rich, to be famous. I think most of us have a sense that, man, those answers are really pretty short. Those answers are really not gonna work. They're fleeting, they don't last. Uh, You don't control them, they're outside of your control, they're based on circumstances, and they won't lead to real deep, meaningful happiness, real deep joy. Okay, so so we we know that the world's answers don't work, so we begin to look for, for spiritual answers, for, for churchy sounding answers. So, so people might say, well, the reason I'm here is, is to worship God or to study the Bible or to pray or to grow in my relationship with Jesus. Now, all of those are good things. All of those are essential things that we should be doing. And yet, none of those answer the question. Why? Why do none of those answer the question? Because you can do all of them better in heaven. The only reason you were here is to worship, then God would just take you home now. We had great worship this morning. I'm really appreciative to Colin and the band for leading us. Uh, it was great, but it was nothing compared to what you're going to be doing in heaven. This morning, you're trying to stay awake and engage and figure out what the words are. In heaven, you're going to be with God face to face. It's going to be awesome worship. You're not here to worship. That's not the primary reason. And you're not here to study the Bible. I- I'm glad you're doing it, but it's going to be much better in heaven when you can sit down with Paul and look at the book of Romans. Hey, dude, what... <laughs> What's going on here? And it can't be to pray because in heaven, you're just gonna talk to God. Jesus, I I need this or or please tell me that. You're just gonna be with God. Those aren't the reasons that God has left you here because all of those are gonna be infinitely better when you're in heaven. So why has God left you here? The answer's back in chapter one. Look at chapter one. Why has God left us here? Chapter one, verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What Paul is saying is the reason you are here is to proclaim the gospel. That's why God has left you here. Everything else will be better in heaven. The reason you're still here is to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. The good news that even though everyone here is a sinner, we can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus took our punishment and our place and then rose from the dead and you can be saved simply through faith. We are here to proclaim that good news because that good news is the only hope for humanity. All the things you hear spouted in political debates that will fix our problems, whether they be more taxes, lower taxes, more government, less government, environmental change, social reform, whatever it might be, all good things, but none of them will solve the problem we face in this world. Why? So all they do is treat symptoms. The root issue is sin. The root issue is that the human heart is in active rebellion against God. If you don't fix that, then you can't fix this world. And the only thing that can fix the human heart is the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That is the only hope for the human race. And so that's why God has left you here. That's why you are here in this time, in this place, to proclaim the gospel through your words and your actions. That's why you're here. There were shirts that you could buy a number of years ago uh, that said, uh, blank is life, the rest is just details. And and every sport customized it for their sport. Uh, These shirts were everywhere. And I like the spirit here. I like the idea. You're trying to narrow life down. You're trying to focus on that one thing that is the reason for your existence, the reason for your time on the planet Earth. Uh, Good intention here, but wrong object. If you were to ask Paul, to make a shirt like this, this is the shirt that Paul would make. The gospel is life. The rest is just details. The good news about Jesus Christ, that is life in every sense of the word life. That is why you're here. That's what life is about. That's the only hope for life. That is life. Everything else, your job, whether you get married or not, whether you have kids or not, uh, the house you own, the car you buy, everything else in your life is just details. The reason you're here is to proclaim the gospel. That is life. That's what the rest of the book of Romans is going to flesh out. It's going to continue to show us the depth and beauty of this gospel that God has entrusted to us to share with others. Now, as we get ready to jump into chapter 7 next week to move forward in the book of Romans, I want to give you a couple things to do this week in preparation. I want to ask you guys to read through Romans 1 through 7. You can just read a chapter a day. Seven chapters will fit in seven days. Read chapters one through seven to to refresh yourself on what Paul has covered and to get ahead as we look at chapter seven next week. And then second, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to pray that the Lord would help you identify one area of your life, one thing that is going poorly right now that you want him to change for the better this semester. The good news is that God is righteous. And that God in righteousness wants to make you righteous. He wants to affect your life for the better this semester. He wants to take that that broken, painful, sinful part of your life and he wants to redeem it. He wants to make it whole and complete again. He wants to make you right. And so pray this week that God would help you to see what is that area in your life. Maybe it is a, a sin that you've just not been able to beat, something challenging, a relationship that's not working, whatever it might be, something that has been characterized by sin and brokenness and failure. Ask God to help you identify that and to help you this semester to turn from that, to be healed in that, to grow in that area.
So please be praying for that. Let's, let's believe that God wants to do great things this semester in our lives. That Romans isn't just an academic study. That it's really meant to change our hearts. So final thing I want to share with you guys. Uh, if you've got a bulletin, you'll see that there's an insert in it that looks like this. Uh, we wanted to give you guys an overview of the events to come. I heard we ran out of bulletins, so many of you may not have this. All of this is online, so you can go online and find out more about what's going on this spring. The number of neat opportunities for you guys, you can sign up for any of these online. On the back of that form, though, is something really significant. It's the list of all of our small group options. I'm really grateful that all of you are here this morning. I, I'm, I'm so pleased that you're worshiping with us, that you're studying the word with us. Uh, but I've said this before, and I really mean it. I do not believe that Sunday mornings here in big service is the primary place where you grow. This is good, but this is not where you really grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. Where you really grow is in a small group. So I want to encourage you to get plugged into a small group where you can study the word with others, where you can hold one another accountable and pray for one another. Join a small group, whether it's with Grace Bible Church or with another church or another organization here in town. Join a small group. We've got lots of options for you, whether it's in the home, at church, with students, with adults, all kinds of different curriculum we're studying, mornings, nights, all kinds of options. Choose one. Get plugged into a small group because that's where you'll grow. Let's go before the Lord and thank him for who he is and pray that he would truly grow us in righteousness this semester. Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you. We thank you that you are righteous. We thank you that you are always right in all that you are and all that you do. What a joy it is to us, Lord, that we do not worship a God who sins, a God who does evil, a God whom we cannot trust. Thank you that you are perfect in every way. And thank you that you, the perfect God, have, have reached down to us, Lord. We are so unworthy of your care. All we deserve is your punishment. All we deserve is to be wiped out by you. But in love and in grace, you have not just reached down to us, but you sent your son. He became flesh, God in human flesh, on our behalf to die for us and rise from the dead. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that you, who are creator and sovereign judge, ruler infinite in every way, have chosen to care about us. Thank you this morning, Lord, that we can study the book of Romans. We pray that as we continue to study it this semester, that you would grow us and change us for the better through it. And I pray for all of us this week, Lord, I do pray, please open our eyes, Lord, to see what is that area of our lives uh, that has been characterized by sin and brokenness and failure in the past that, that you want to really work on this semester, that you want to change for the better, that you want to redeem and make whole. Please, Lord. Raise that to our minds. Help us to pray about it. We pray that your spirit would have free reign in our lives to make us righteous, to change us to be more like your son. It's in his glorious and infinite name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.